Thank you, everyone, for coming tonight and practicing together, supporting each other in practice. The Sangha is a wonderful thing, a wonderful treasure. And thank you to Nalanda West and the Northwest Dharma Association and Hamlet Rinpoche and Erica and Nick and Julie and everyone involved in this conference. And it's fine to come in with the baby if you want to. You're not too embarrassed. If he makes sweet little noises, it's fine. We have babies in our meditation hall. And nobody minds little baby noises. I'm going to talk tonight a little bit about practicing with and practicing within a family. And then there'll be some time at the end. I'll, I'll talk, I'll tell some little anecdotes from my 35 years of practicing with family. And then at the end, if you have some questions, we can talk about those too. Family practice. This is a, a very a frequent and exciting topic in the West. Why is it so interesting? Well, here's the issue, somewhat simplified. We need to look back and, and get some historical uh, framework for this question, how to practice with our families. Uh, Buddhist practice in the East, whether in India or China or Korea or Vietnam or Japan or Cambodia or Tibet, was essentially a monastic practice. The monks and nuns did the real practice, while the lay people supported them through donations, the lay people having faith that they were earning merit and moving towards a future life when they could practice as a monastic. The Buddha very intelligently set up a system of reciprocity and mutual dependence between lay practitioners and the ordained. The lay people supplied the necessities of food and shelter and cloth for robes and, med and medicine, and the ordained supplied the Dharma teachings, the ceremonies, and the blessings for times of life transition, such as birth and death. So this was a very beautiful and mutually supportive relationship. The Pali Canon, when you look at it carefully, and I've consulted with a number of people who are experts on the Pali Canon about this, and they confirm this, the Pali Canon indicates that the Buddha taught lay people in a very simple way. They were encouraged to take refuge in the three treasures. They were encouraged to be generous. In fact, the Buddha emphasized generosity over and over again as the primary practice if a lay person wished to move towards enlightenment. And the Buddha gives very practical advice, too, about generosity. He's actually a very good investment counselor if you read all of his information on where, who, how to prepare yourself to give, what to give, who to give it to, and so on. So uh, lay people were encouraged to be generous, uh, to be ethical and keep the five precepts, to be kind, and to take good care of those they were responsible for. So their wives or their husbands, their children, their servants, and their employees. And that was really the essence of 
of the Buddha's teachings to lay practitioners. Oh, included in that is husbands were encouraged to give jewels to their wives. So, ladies, anytime you're walking by a jewelry store, the Buddha said... <laughs> If lay people aspired to escape samsara and become ordained in a future life, I'm sure that there were some unhappy ordained people who looked longingly out the doors of the monastery and secretly prayed to be reborn as a lay person. I've had enough of rice gruel and pickles. I'll practice really, really hard and endure the rigors of monastic life. Quite cheerfully, if only I can be reborn in a country where there are beautiful women and pizza and pizza with sun-dried tomatoes and feta cheese and Ben and Jerry's. Because we have to remember that people went into monastic practice in the time of the Buddha often uh, because was a better alternative than tremendous suffering in their lay life. So many widows who had really had no future, they had no man to support them. Widows created by the many wars that raged at the time of the Buddha. Widows created by men up and leaving their homes as the Buddha did and going into the ordained life. So uh, lay life wasn't uh, so wonderful for people who became ordained. But ordained life was also hard. There's a very touching uh, passage in the canon when Ananda goes to give comfort to Anattapindika. Anattapindika was uh, a very wealthy patron who gave a park. When you read the Pali canon, it often says that this was, thus I have heard when the Buddha spoke at Anattapindika's park. Because that's where he often stayed with his retinue of monks and preached. And uh, Anattapindika was a devoted follower of the Buddha and must have heard hundreds of sermons and teachings by the Buddha. And yet, when Anattapindika was on his deathbed and in a lot of pain, and Ananda comes to him to offer him some comfort uh, and asks, are you in pain? And Anattapindika says, yes. And then uh, Ananda teaches him the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And Anattapindika begins to weep, saying, why did you not teach this to me before? Why did I not hear this before? So this gives us a clear indication that even what we consider the basics of Buddhism, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, were not taught to lay people in the time of the Buddha. So we have to ponder that. Why was that? So it appears that lay people in the time of the Buddha were not engaged in what we might understand as practice. Meditation, sutra study, practice discussions, and retreats. In medieval Japan, and my tradition is a Japanese tradition, only the ordained, only, I'm sorry, sorry, only the ordained or the aristocracy had time for long silent retreats or for detailed study of the sutra, exposition of the sutras. Ordinary people, fishermen and shopkeepers and farmers and prostitutes and housewives, 
took up practices that could be done in the midst of their continuous struggle to really to survive. They favored faith-based practices such as recitation of, of mantras, Om Ka Ka Kabisamai Sawaka, which is the mantra for Jizo, Bodhisattva, or of the Buddha's name, Namo Amida Buddha. If you go to China, even today, many people will greet you with uh, Amitofu. Or just the titles of certain sutras, Namo Rinye Kyo. When, the, when Buddhism came to the West, it encountered a very different situation in a way we could be described as ornery lay people. Lay people who were not content to sit on the sidelines, waiting on the monks and waiting for another birth when they could be a monk or a nun. This Buddhism also encountered in the West women who were serious about practice. The canon was translated into English, and we were all literate, so we could read about enlightenment and read about the practices leading to enlightenment ourselves. We believed that it was possible. I remember reading, at the time I began practice 35 years ago, there weren't many books on Buddhism in English, and I remember reading Three Pillars of Zen, which was that in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, were about the only books on practicing Zen, so they were all well-thumbed. And we were told, don't read the chapters on enlightenment experiences in Three Pillars of Zen. There's some chapters on P.K., who is actually Philip Kaplow, and his, a, a Toronto businessman and his enlightenment experiences. And we were told, don't read those chapters because it will just you know, cloud your mind. And so, of course, any book, any old book on Three Pillars of Zen automatically falls open to those chapters because <laughs> we read them and reread them. <laughs> Oh, I want, I want the one where there's fireworks. And <laughs> so we read about enlightenment, and believe, we believed it was possible. I remember reading Three Pillars of Zen and thinking, yes, I'm going to go for it. I know that this is possible for human beings. And we wanted to experience it ourselves. We wanted to sit seven-day retreats. We wanted to do nundral practices. We wanted to take empowerments ourselves. We were inspired to host practice groups in our homes, even to give basic meditation instructions to strangers who came in the door. Uh, bystanders no longer. Bystanders no longer. Our hunger grew. Why not stay a month in a monastery? Why not a three-year retreat? So when we go to Japan, when we make pilgrimages to Japan, and we're traveling on the Shinkansen, the the rapid train or in streetcars or wherever people will often ask us well, what are you doing in Japan and we say well we're here to study Zen and they go to study Zen and they look at us like we might look at somebody that you might encounter in a bus say, and you ask them what are they, a Japanese person and you ask them what are they doing here and they say we're here to study the shakers we're shakers <laughs> really I thought they died out <laughs> So it was quite stunning to go to Japan and find out that lay people don't practice the way we practice in Japan. They don't practice Zen in the way we think of practicing Zen. So we wanted to practice. We had a great hunger for enlightenment. There was only one problem. 
we had or we wanted to have houses and families. And then we needed Toyota vans and lawnmowers and side-by-side refrigerator freezers. And then ultimately storage containers. (laughs) (laughs) We needed to take our kids to piano lessons and to soccer games. And we needed to work to pay for all of this, which was a big nuisance or at least a source of conflict if we also wanted the time, the lots of time, that serious practice demanded. Once we were flying to a, uh, back from a pilgrimage, we, took, we did a pilgrimage back to my teacher's 300-year-old temple with a group of our uh, sangha students in our sangha. And on the plane back after two weeks in Japan, practicing at this temple, Uh, one of our students, a woman, came back to my seat and eyes all aglow. She sat down and she said, I know what I want to do with my life. I want to get ordained. I asked Roshi and he said, yes. Now, you have to understand in Japan, there are many types of yes, many of which are no. (laughs) (laughs) Or, that's a wonderful idea maybe 10 lifetimes from now that kind of yes, but she had heard it as yes. So she said to me, there's only one problem. There's only one obstacle, and that's my family. <laughs> I, said, I said, really, you mean your husband of many years and your emotionally troubled adopted daughter and your developmentally delayed daughter? Those are the only obstacles? <laughs> I just wanted to grab her and shake her, you know, shake some sense into her. But I understood. I understood what had happened. What had happened is the monastic voice had emerged. So those of you who have meditated, and I assume that includes all of you, have become aware of the plethora of inner voices. Many, many voices. We're all made up of many energies and many voices. Really, the voices are the same. It's just that each personality is made up of a different recipe of those energies or those voices. And one of them is the monastic voice. Uh, Almost every person, I'm convinced, has a monastic voice. At our monastery, we regularly get telephone calls from complete strangers who blurt out, I've decided that I want to get ordained. How quickly can I get ordained there? (laughs) hello (laughs) we've actually been warned against middle aged men whose wives have either left them or died who don't know how to do their own laundry or cook and decide suddenly they have a monastic vocation (laughs) so we get calls like that somebody who's determined to get ordained and wants to do it next week uh, at the latest and we tell them well it's actually rather complicated. There's a long training period and you're welcome to come visit for a day and see the monastery if you wish and we never hear from them again. (laughs) And what's happened is the monastic voice has struggled to the top of the pack of inner voices and it somehow forced their hands to Google us (laughs) and then to dial their phone and then to express itself. I want to get ordained. But almost as soon as they hang up, I think that voice recedes 
back into the pack of competing voices who all say, what were you thinking? Mm -hmm. Well, actually, says the monastic voice, I was thinking of enlightenment. I was thinking of enlightenment. Why? Because enlightenment is part of our very nature. It's always there calling to us from within. It compels us to do odd things like dress in Tang Dynasty Chinese robes or sit on the floor at age 50 with our creaking bones. It's always calling us. It compels us to do metta practice, to do Tonglen, to do bows, 100,000 bows. Who would have thought when we were 10 and our ambition was to be a cowboy? I wanted to be a cowgirl, actually, that I would end up here. But the voice, the voice of enlightenment calls to us to realize our full potential. It's always calling us home. How then are, to we, are we to honor that voice without abandoning our families, quitting our jobs, and reneging on our responsibilities? This is the dilemma, and this is the joy of practice in families and practicing within families in the West. I'm going to read to you something that I uh, said in the 1980s. It's interesting to go back and look at what you said and think, gosh, I think I was a little wiser then than I am now. (laughs) Maybe I'm going backwards in practice. This was a conference on women in Buddhism held at the Providence Zen Center in the 1980s. And this is a little excerpt from the talk that I gave there about this very same issue. So it's not a new issue. I've heard women talking about the problems they have in practice, problems I do not often hear from men, although I have to say, more recently I do hear it from men because men are taking much more responsibility for raising children. If we're working women with household, children, and a spouse or partner, and on top of that we have practice, then our days are more than full. We wake up in the morning and first thing we go over lists. The day goes by too fast, and we go to bed at night and we wish that we had at least six more hours. We pick up bits of of lint as we cross the living room. As we turn out the lights, our last vision is of the kitchen floor that needs washing. Oh well. Tomorrow I'll sit. Just no time to do it all. Our days are so full. We wash diapers, thinking, I know this is practice too, but I really want to be in the meditation hall. Meditation is such a relief to have a few moments to ourselves. The place I used to have for these moments to myself was the bathroom. I could sit in the bathroom for ten whole minutes of solitude. But usually there was a child lying against the door, sobbing, Mommy, when are you going to come out? In a while, are you doing number one or number two? (laughs) When we start to practice, we discover how wonderful these moments are to stand back, to reflect on our lives, to order our priorities, 
to have the chaos settle down and to become calm enough to go back into the fray. When we get a little taste of that, we want more. The spiritual hunger is tremendous. The spiritual thirst is tremendous. We are almost afraid to open the door because when it opens, it opens wide. We have a tremendous yearning to take the search all the way to the bottom, to put aside all the things that restrict us and bind us and keep us from pursuing that search full time. To do that, we have to do meditation. We have to do retreat. We have to set aside hours, days, weeks to pursue that search. Meanwhile, what are we leaving at home? Jobs, housework, children. As we sit, visions of spiritual orphans float through our heads. We picture our child wandering through the neighborhood, dirty, in a tattered shirt, thumb in his mouth. Someone says, where's your mommy? He replies, my mommy is getting enlightened. (laughs) So I've laid out the problem. Thank you. What's the solution? I don't have a simple solution. Nothing in practice is simple. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, says one of the most difficult aspects of practice is patience with complexity. And this is complex. Buddhism has been able to survive by adapting itself to the needs of every country that it's entered. It's done that so beautifully. In America and Europe, we're inventing a new form of Buddhism. Its unique aspects are a canon that we can read ourselves, an active lay practice. Most practitioners are lay practitioners in this country. Women who are strong practitioners and have teaching roles and families. By families, I mean partners and children and relatives and friends whom we would like to involve in practice. So I have a few principles of family practice. The first principle of family practice is this. The best way to encourage our family to practice is to practice ourselves and to embody the benefits of practice. One of the things I often ask people to do when they get frustrated about the state of the world is to consider who can you really change? Who can you really change? And how would you do that? How do people come to change? So who, who can you really change? You consider the people that you are closest to, that you have the most influence on. Okay, so consider who that person is. Maybe your partner, your parent, or your child. The person that you have spent the most time with and have the most intimate knowledge of and the most influence over. So how much effort would it take to get them to change something basic about themselves? Well... Let's go back to how much effort would it take to get them to change something simple, like putting the toilet seat down or up. A lot of nagging and a lot of grief about it. It's almost not worth the effort if we love people to push too hard on something. And we know, if we look at ourselves, how hard is it to change ourselves? It's extremely difficult to fundamentally change yourself. So why in the world do we think that we can 
change people 3,000 miles away, like the President of the United States. Really, the only person we have a hope of transforming in a significant way is ourselves, and that's extremely difficult. But that's where it starts, because when we transform everyone we come in contact with, and even people that we're not directly in contact with, change. Because we are, uh, the analogy I use is that we are essentially the empty space in a big mass of bubbles. You consider a bunch of soap bubbles, and each bubble is made up of the intersection of all the other bubbles. And so we're the emptiness in the middle of that. So when any bubble changes, including us, then they all have to change. That's how practice works. That's the miracle of practice. So the first principle of family practice is the best way to encourage our family and friends to practice is to practice ourselves and to embody the benefits of practice. We can bring that benefit to those we love much more through inspiration. That's really how people change. They're inspired to change, not forced to change, not cajoled to change. My uh, first husband began meditating before I did. He was a university professor under a lot of stress to perish or publish. And uh, some of his students said, oh, there's another professor who's meditating. You, you might want to go learn from him. So he learned, and I actually fell asleep because I was an intern at the time, uh, working 70-hour know, days. And I fell asleep under the coffee table while he learned to meditate. But for the next year, he got up every morning early and would go in the living room and sit facing the wall, as, our, as is our want in Soto Zen, and meditate. And often the baby would get up and crawl into the living room and then crawl over to his dad and look up in his dad's face and then look over at the wall. <laughs> and look up in his dad's face and look at the wall. And then finally crawl up in, into his dad's lap and then fall asleep. And I was so impressed with the changes in my husband over a year of meditation that I began meditating too. See, that's how we inspire people to change. Second principle of family practice is that if we exert too much force on our partner or our kids to adopt our particular form of practice, they are likely to turn around and go in the exact opposite direction. We used to amuse ourselves at the Zen Center in Los Angeles by trying to predict what our kids would become in order to really get us. We predicted that uh, Hell's Angels, heavily tattooed, roaring into our quiet center on motorcycles, or fundamentalist snake-handling Christians. (laughs) There are many things that we predicted that, but many things we didn't predict that they ended up doing. At a gathering of Zen teachers once, I was talking about this very thing, you know, what, what did our kids become to get us? And uh, one, one woman who said, well, my, my daughter is a porn star. And I thought, boy, we never thought of that one. <laughs> Sex is the way to relieve suffering. But she's very dedicated. She really believes this is the way to happiness, and she's very earnest about it. To avoid inducing this reactivity in our children or families, we need to encourage our kids to go to Dharma school or camp with kids their own age. Or ask our cautious partner to accompany us to a safe Sangha event, like a potluck. You know, dip your toe in easily. 
they'll come to a 10-day retreat. Out of my, out of, with my second husband, we had five kids together. Two of them were raised at a Zen center back east, which was a, uh, where, the, where the, there was a lot of family practice, a lot of wonderful family practice, but also a lot of pressure uh, within the practice and pressure on the kids to practice. And both of those kids have ended up not practicing at all, anything. And one of them expressed to us a fair amount of resentment about the practice, the time her family gave to practice. And there's actually a group of kids that were raised at that Zen center who have formed a a support group for spiritual orphans. Because they were actually told, they heard, you know, kids hear everything. And do you know what the name Rahula, you know what that means? Fetter. The Buddha named his son Fetter. And those kids were aware of that and aware of the fact that they were fetters to their parents' enlightenment. So there was a fair amount of residual resentment from some of those kids. Now, one of those kids, she spent some time in in Chicago, uh, fell in love with a man whose family was on welfare, got to see the other side of people who don't practice at all uh, and live in poverty and really struggle in their lives. And she came out of that experience saying to us, you know, when I look back at the Zen Center, it doesn't look so bad. This is, this is the line I love. At least they were trying. At least they were trying. So save that line and feed it back to your kids sometime. <laughs> at least we were trying. <laughs> and then of my three kids, uh, one had Jukai at age 11, and does a lot of meditation, although he's not, would consider himself a Buddhist, but not a Zen Buddhist by any means. The other one does a lot of meditation, but has another entirely different kind of practice. And the other one has gone into nursing as, as a form of social service. So, you know, I figure if we, if we raise kids to be good people, people care, who care and take care of other people, that's pretty wonderful. It doesn't matter if they're Zen Buddhist or not, or even Buddhist. A research shows that children whose parents are religious, meaning attended religious services regularly, are better behaved and better adjusted, have more self-control, better social skills, show more respect, and work better with their peers in school than kids whose parents are not religious. This is a sociological study out of the University of Mississippi with 16,000 first graders. What is the reason? Uh, they speculate on this, but they feel that religious networks provide support to parents and sometimes help teach parenting skills, and that kids hear messages better from other adults, or at least their parents' messages are reinforced by other adults. Two, that the types of value in religious groups tend to be pro-family and pro-self-sacrifice, thinking of others, not just yourself. And three, that religious organizations imbue parenting with sacred meaning and significance. So mindful parenting, that's different from parenting, right? Many of my students will say, oh, well, if you frame that as practice, then I'm happy to do it. (laughs) If it's just ordinary life, I'm, I'm grudgingly doing it. It's one of those odd things about being a human being. So if, it's, if washing dishes is work practice, then that's great. If it's just washing dishes, eh.
There was a time when I thought that my kids were my product, essentially, that I had a lot to do with framing and forming who they were. And then after they became teenagers, I decided that I had nothing to do with framing who they were, <laughs> that they had been dropped into our midst from an alien spaceship, <laughs> and that our main duty was not to kill them. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I was at an interreligious conference, and uh, there was a rabbi there from uh, a small uh, Jewish group, very interesting, active, uh, reformed Jewish group. And he said that they, they looked at children in that way. The children are given to you for you to feed, clothe, and set firmly on whatever their own spiritual path is. I thought that was a great, great formulation. The third principle of family practice is to respect the spiritual path of others. The same study that I just quoted showed that parent, kids whose parents argued frequently about religion had problems. If our kids want to go to Episcopal Sunday school with their friends, or if our partner wants to do meditation while fishing, while we go to the Dharma Center, that's great. There should be mutual support. We should make it a point to attend their choir concert or even go camping in a leaky tent in the rain so that they can enter their source point to the, to the great mystery, to the absolute, their Dharma gate. This principle could be worded as any religion is better than none. And this is a finding from prisons, that prisoners who have any religious practice, even those who are jailhouse converts, do better in prison and upon release than those who have no religious practice. And since we're all living in prison, in a self-created prison of a small self, we could apply this principle to ourselves. And I see this with young people who come to the monastery to train. If they have had a religious background, even walking themselves to Sunday school while their parents slept in or going to Sunday school with friends, they have a certain spiritual and ethical foundation that's palpable. And their religious training is it's very easier, it's much easier to begin their religious training and go forward with their religious training. Studies show that adults who, have, who attend religious services regularly uh, do more volunteer work, vote more often, uh, contribute 50% more acts of service in the community, and that teens who go to religious services regularly are less likely to smoke, to drink, to have sex early, and to get depressed. And that I give a lot of talks to professionals on burnout compassion fatigue, secondary trauma, and so on. And really, the dimension that suffers the most in, in those afflictions is the spiritual dimension, is losing a larger framework for your life, which is basically hope, which is related to depression. When you lose that framework, then you become depressed. 
So religion of any sort gives us a larger framework for our life. Our family lived for eight years at the Zen Center in Los Angeles in a very chaotic environment. We were, uh, the Zen Center is in a, in a ghetto with gangs fighting continually. There, was always, there, was always, there were always drive-by shootings and drug deals going down and down around us. Helicopters hovering overhead looking for criminals in our backyards, things stolen and so on. And initially we put our kids in public schools believing uh, in public education, but we ended up having to take them out because it was so chaotic and, viol and violent. And we ended up putting them in religious schools. So the oldest went to a congregational church uh, high school, the middle child went to a Lutheran school, and then the youngest one went to an Episcopal church school. Uh, the only problem was uh, one year all three Christmas programs happened on the same night. <laughs> you drive to the first ten minutes of one and drive to the second ten minutes of another one. But during that time, one of my clearest memories is of my youngest son, Noah, opening the annual Christmas ornament that my mother would send them, their grandmother would send them each year a Christmas ornament. And he opened the box and he pulled out a feathered white dove and he held it up and his eyes were gleaming and he said, it's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and indeed it was. The Holy Spirit was palpable in the room. Children have a natural spiritual life. And they have a certain natural wisdom, too, that if we encourage them in practice, can come out and can uh, be transmitted to us. Uh, I used to do a children's meditation group and, uh, at our downtown center in Portland. And one time I had the kids all sit in the middle, and then the adults sat, sat around the outside, sort of like a children's sermon in a church. So the kids sat in the middle, and the adults around the outside. And I, was, I taught the kids the pebble meditation, Thich Nhat Hanh's pebble meditation. So what you do is you have the kids pick ten special stones or shells or frosted glass from the beach, whatever. And then on the in-breath, they pick it up. And on the out-breath, they put it down by the other knee. The next in-breath, they pick it up, put it down by the next knee. Little kids can do about five of those. And as they get older, 10 or 20, they can transfer all 10 to this side and then back. It's a very lovely meditation, a physical meditation. Adults like it too. And then the, there's another one that, which involves just raising your hand and putting it down on your knee as you, as you breathe. This physicality is very helpful even for a lot of adults. And one uh, boy that had learned it, his mom was actually a, a Vipassana practitioner, but he, he had come to our Dharma school and he learned it. And she told me later that when he, he kept the pebbles tucked under his pillow, and at night, if he had nightmares, he would pull them out and he would start the pebble meditation to calm himself down. So he used it as a self-calming technique uh, when he needed it. So back to the Dharma Center where I have the kids in the middle and the adults on the outside. And I, um, I said to the kids, you know, uh, your parents come here to meditate. So do you think that does them any good? And they all said, yes. <laughs> Which is a little interesting for the adults. So that meant the kids had noticed the benefit of the meditation. 
So I asked how, and they said, oh, well, they're calmer, they're nicer to us, and so on. And then I said, you know, um, meditation can really help with being afraid. So tell me some examples of what you might be afraid of. And so the kids talked about wolves under the bed at night and uh, that sort of thing, bullies at school and that sort of thing. So we talked about how meditation could benefit you or practice could benefit you in those situations. And then I said, you know, uh, some of those fears are imaginary and some of those fears are real. Imaginary might be the wolves under the bed and real would be bullies at school. How about grown-ups? Do they have any imaginary fears? And hands went up. And so I said, well, so what imaginary fear do you know about that grown-ups have? Hurry, hurry, we'll be late. (laughs) I didn't have to say anything. (laughs) And then another hand. Taxes. Chillingly wise, these kids. <laughs> and the adults got the message. No, the kids are watching. The kids are watching. So kids are naturally spiritual, and we need to help them acknowledge that and bring that out, and also to listen to them. A corollary to the principle that any religion is better than none is too much of the wrong kind of religion or too much or the wrong kind of religion can be worse than none. So we encounter many people who have been traumatized by religion by being told that they would burn in hell forever for being gay or for getting divorced or even worse, people who have been traumatized by an encounter with an abusive teacher. The saddest kind of spiritual refugee is someone so burned by religion that they lose all faith in themselves as fundamentally spiritual people, as innately enlightened beings. It takes a lot of extra care and shepherding to help them regain trust and to be willing to plunge deeply again into a spiritual practice to be that vulnerable. We, we have to take a lot of care with them and often reassure them and, and ask them directly, if there's something that makes you uncomfortable, please come and tell us right away so that we can help with that discomfort. And we also, I do a lot of explaining of, of a Buddhist concept of, of, for instance, wholesome and unwholesome as opposed to sinful or evil. Our culture is so permeated by Judeo-Christian values that people hear with a filter. And we have to constantly counteract that by talking about the Buddhist point of view on breaking the precepts, for example. Wholesome action, skillful action versus unwholesome or unskillful action. Leading to enlightenment or not, or leading away from the enlightened way of being. Because the ideas of sin is so uh, ingrained in us. We actually do this. We do a little um, workshop on the inner critic. The inner critic is the modern psychological version of skeptical doubt. Um, skeptical doubt is, is that critical voice which uh, says you're no good as a spiritual practitioner, so it points to yourself. 
The Sangha is no good, points outward to the Sangha. The teacher is no good. Buddhism is no good. Religion is no good. Uh, so skeptical doubt can be a real big problem. We, we talk about it in terms of the inner critic in this workshop because the inner critic can pull, out, pull the, the rug of spiritual practice out from under us. It's very different from great doubt, which is a necessity for practice. Skeptical doubt is different. It's a, fe it's a fetter. It's a hindrance. And we discovered that um, in one workshop that there are Jewish inner critics, Catholic inner critics, and Protestant inner critics. <laughs> so the Catholic inner critic says, you are failing because you could be sinning and not even know it. Because there's a complicated system of sinning, right? And many kids, I found this out, many Catholic kids have to go to first confession without anything to confess. So they have to make up something for first confession, which means they have then lied. Oh, there you are, sinning right away. The Protestant inner critic says, you are failing because you are not working hard enough at spiritual practice or anything else. The Jewish inner critic says, you are failing because your mother is not happy. <laughs> But when the inner critic gets a hold of practice, inner critic, outer judge, it just depends on which way it's directed. It becomes skeptical doubt. It can be a real problem, and we have to work with that. Or when the notion of original sin and so on is deeply embedded, we have to work with that. We definitely don't want to pass that to our children. The fourth principle of family practice is to integrate practice into family life. I call this the Jewish model of the home as the temple. Have a moment of silence and say a Buddhist grace or chant at meals. Uh, now, this also depends on the age of the child. Ideally, you start it early. So what we did is we would hold hands and we would have a moment of silence before starting a meal, and we would ask the kids to think about where the food came from and how many people had been involved in bringing it to the table. And then after silence, we would say, so where does spaghetti come from? This would be partly to disabuse them of the notion that it's grown on trees and you know, packaged in cellophane. Uh, but then after years of this, we would hold hands and have silence, and then as soon as we dropped our hands, they would say, spaghetti comes from wheat, and wheat comes from the farmer. <laughs> then it's time to switch to some other something else. Mix Jataka tales or other Buddhist children's books into the pile for bedtime reading. The uh, movie Little Buddha is a beautiful example of that, reading a chapter a night. Start infants and small children sitting on your lap while you meditate. Sing Dharma songs in the car on the way to the soccer game. Talk about loving kindness and teach kids to do metta for themselves, for people they see on TV caught in disasters. For their enemies, maybe bullies at school or a friend who's deserted them. Our kids need the support of spiritual practice. You know, we humans evolved over hundreds of thousands of years in tribes of about 35 to 50 people. So our bodies, hearts, and minds were designed to take in the trials and the sufferings of a small group of people. 
the births, the deaths, the unexpected disasters, the illnesses, the conflicts of about 35 to 50 people. We had mechanisms to handle that amount of distress. We had shamans, we had myths, we had ceremonies. We had cleansing rituals. But now, thanks to the media and thanks to the internet, the suffering of millions of people all over the earth pour out of those screens and those speakers and directly into our hearts and the hearts of our children. Not only into their hearts, into their minds, and into their bodies. From before they are born, actually, they're subject to anxiety. And I talk a lot to kids about what, what they're worried about, their form of suffering. From before they're born, they're subject to anxiety, bathed in the thoughts and chemicals of anxiety. What if I have to have a C-section instead of natural childbirth? What if I have the wrong car seat facing the wrong direction? Or what if I have the right car seat, but the airbag explodes and smothers my child? There's the mother and the father are full with, filled with anxiety before even the child is born. Pesticides, roadside bombs, genocide, global warming, unmanned drones, stock market crashes, massive floods, earthquakes. We aren't designed to take all this in, to be this afraid, this anxious chronically, and yet we are. We have to provide ourselves and our children with an antidote. My teacher, Maizumi Roshi, Roshi, used to say, the greatest gift is the gift of no fear. And in our society, anxiety is a pervasive form of fear. The best gift that we can give is the gift of no fear or no anxiety, or less anxiety. And the Dharma is the best way to give this gift that I know. The fifth principle, and the underlying principle of all family, family practice and lay practice, is to be creative and to adapt from other traditions. The essence of lay practice is creativity. We've been inventing and sharing new ceremonies that are accessible to families and children. And I think the first Buddhist group to do this effectively in the U.S. was Buddhist Churches of America. They adopted pews. Uh, they adapted hymns, just changed the, Buddhist, the words to Buddhist wording, wording. They started Sunday schools. They really took over the Christian framework so that their kids could feel normal in a Buddhist context. It was very clever. So we have, uh, at, the, at our monastery in our downtown center in Portland, we have ceremonies to welcome new babies into the Sangha, which we made up. But last week was borrowed by KCC in Portland because they had some new kids they wanted to welcome, and they adapted the ceremony in a beautiful way and created a little certificate, and so now we're benefiting from their adaptation. We have funerals for pets. We have children coming for a few hours of our 24-hour chant for peace. We have surviving children who come to our Jizo ceremonies to remember siblings who have died and come back to the Jizo garden to make offerings in honor of the sibling who's died. We have adopted a, a Japanese festival for children called Jizobon, which is a Jizo festival held in late August. And we have a puppet show, and the puppet show has humor, which is 
appropriate both for children and for adults so everybody can enjoy it. And we have a tea ceremony, and the kids are invited to participate in the tea ceremony to have a little treat and have some tea. And kids paint lanterns and prayer flags, and they process through the forest after dark with these lighted lanterns with the adults in a beautiful luminous line that snakes through the, the forest. And then in the forest, we have uh, students dressed as hungry ghosts who emerge moaning from the darkness, and the children are all terrified, although I warn them ahead of time so they won't be too terrified. There might be some hungry ghosts, and, but don't be worried, it's okay, because Jesus will be there, and then Jesus emerges from the darkness all aglow, thanks to glow sticks, and uh, tames, the, tames the hungry ghosts, and then the children are encouraged to take the, the hand of a hungry ghost and bring them back to the meditation hall so we can do the Jesus ceremony. So they take these moaning, trembling creatures by the hand and lead them back to the meditation hall. It's very lovely and very, and very much fun. We have a lot of good models for children's practice that have developed in the last uh, 20 or 30 years in, in the States. There are several centers around the country that have very wonderful, well-developed children's programs. In Portland, Gilkuko Carlson, who really should be up here <laughs> talking to you, uh, about this. She's from the Dharma Rain Zen Center and she has a Dharma school program that began maybe 20 years ago with a few kids and now they have 60 kids. They're bursting at the seams. Uh, every other Sunday they do it two Sundays a month. Uh, she polled kids, she polled people, adults, about their childhood memories of Sunday school, what they liked and what they didn't like. And she used that information to create her Dharma school. And she found that they all remembered and liked the singing. So every Dharma school begins with singing. And there are some songs that we use that were created by a Dharma center back in Ann Arbor, which are kind of zany. They're not smarmy at all, and kids really enjoy them. Uh, a favorite is Junk Mail, which we'll sing in a few minutes. And they have classes for toddlers up to teens, and the, and the babies play, and they play with little... Buddha action figures and act out uh, scenes from the life of the Buddha and the, and the teens have overnights and the teens have very serious discussions uh, they have scouts who get their Buddhist religion badges they have a summer camp, Dharma camp for kids uh, from 9 years to 16 years, they've had the camp for over 10 years and they now have an enrollment of about 50 kids it's a week-long camp. The curriculum is based on the five Buddha families. The kids are divided into the five Buddha families and learn about the five Buddha families. And the favorite activities at the Dharma camp include the swimming hole, the campfire each night with songs and s'mores, and at the end, when the parents come to pick them up, they do skits, demonstrating what they've learned about each of the Buddha families. They're very cute skits. Gyokuko has purposely kept the atmosphere relaxed at Dharma camp, because she's found that so many kids these days have tightly programmed and pressured summer vacations. And when I, I was a counselor uh, one year for the teen group, and I was asking them, uh, well, first of all, I asked them, do you know what suffering is? Do you know? Here's the first noble truth the Buddha taught. What is suffering in your life? And one girl who was about 12 said, Oh, I know what it is. It's that feeling when I come home from school and I feel like something's wrong, but I don't know what it is and I don't know what to do about it. 
That's a pretty good definition of suffering. And then I was talking to the kids about going back to school, and I said, so how do you feel about going back to school? And I discovered they didn't know the difference between anxiety and anticipation. So we had a discussion about the energy, which if it has a negative downturn, oh no, that's anxiety. If it has a positive turn, it's anticipation. Oh good, I get to go see my friends. So we had a very fruitful discussion about that energy and what turns it down and what turns it up. There's a teacher in the Korean tradition in Ann Arbor where some of these Dharma songs originated named Haju Murray. And when her kids were young, she invented a family Dharma camp so that they could all practice together when, the ki- when her kids were home from school in the summer. And they have something now like 30 or more families who camp in tents on the shores of Lake Michigan for a week. And they do a whole variety of fun and Dharma-related events, some for families, some for kids separated from the adults. Norm Fisher, who's a Zen teacher in San Francisco, developed a rite of passage for teens that included precept discussions. He he actually did teen boys. Precept discussions uh, once a month for a number of months, and then finally an overnight where the boys uh, went up into the hills around Green Gulch and did an overnight stay all by themselves in a sacred spot that they had previously found and then came down at dawn and were greeted by their parents. Very lovely. And Spirit Rock has has programs now for families and teens and young young adults. So we can all attend these and bring back ideas and exchange ideas. In summary, I would say, be creative. Respect everyone's access to the divine. Have fun and don't force it. Remember that Buddhism typically takes 200 years at least to integrate into a new culture and adapt itself. We have about 100 more years to go. If we start to work on aspects of practice for our teens, our kids, and our families now, well then, in our next lifetime, when we grow up to be nine years old, we could go to Dharma camp. (laughs) And we could sit around the campfire and eat all the s'mores we want. So now I'd like to sing junk mail, and then we can have some time for questions. Copies of junk mail? Can we pass out? While they're being passed out, I, I'm, I want to show you this, this uh, book. So I wrote a book about Jizo Bodhisattva, guardian of women, children, and travelers. But I made a vow a few years ago, because most practitioners are lay practitioners, that I would develop some practices which were specifically applicable to lay practice. And as a pediatrician, I'm uh, seeing this epidemic of obesity among children and, of course, among adults, too. And so I looked at, well, what from my Zen practice or Buddhist practice would be applicable to to the arena of medicine and suffering that I'm seeing uh, related to eating, difficulties with eating? So I wrote a book on mindful eating. And um, it has, (laughs) as they say on television, if you get not only this book, but knives and a vegetable chopper and, no, what you get is you get the book (laughs) and you get a CD in the back that has um, 13 different mindful eating exercise, meditation exercises. I was just 
talking to Erica about a CD that she's making uh, with mindfulness meditations. Um, and I'm, I've inscribed this, and this is to be donated to the Nalanda West Library. So it will be available there. So we, this, this song is great fun. Kids love it. And it has a chorus. The chorus is on the right side. See where it is? So I'll sing the chorus first, and you'll get the idea. And then we'll sing each verse with the chorus between. So the chorus goes like this. Say, how did all this material mosey into my mental mailbox? It's junk mail. Stick it in the garbage pail. You don't have to hold it or unfold it. You don't have to read it or repeat it. You don't have to swallow it or follow it. Play the host, not the guest. Come on, baby, just give it a rest. You know, just because they found a clever way to put your name on it. Do I do I? <laughs> Doesn't mean that it's for you. Okay, and then the and then the verse goes, and you'll get the idea. I'm too skinny, I'm too fat, nose too big, chest too flat, too much this and not enough that. Buy another brand new hat. No one loves me but my cat. Say, how did all this material mosey into my mental mailbox? It's junk mail. Stick it in the garbage pail. You don't have to hold it or unfold it. You don't have to read it or repeat it. You don't have to swallow it or follow it. Play the host, not the guest. Come on, baby, just give it a rest. You know, just because they found a clever way to put your name on it, do I do I? Doesn't mean that it's for you. Okay, verse two. Work too hard, don't work enough. Belly too soft, beard too tough. Guys like me, we have it rough. How come Joe has so much stuff? I don't have to take your guff. Say, how did all this material mosey into my mental mailbox? It's junk mail. Stick it in the garbage pail. You don't have to hold it or unfold it. You don't have to read it or repeat it. You don't have to swallow it or follow it. Play the host, not the guest. Come on, baby, just give it a rest. You know, just because they found a clever way to put your name on it. Do I, do I, doesn't mean that it's for you. Boys like Sheila better than me. Mom's too strict, dad's too free. Guess I'll fail geometry. Gotta go watch MTV. What will I grow up to be? Say, how did all this material mosey into my mental mailbox? It's junk mail. Stick it in the garbage pail. 
You don't have to hold it or unfold it. You don't have to read it or repeat it. You don't have to swallow it or follow it. Play the host, not the guest. Come on, baby, just give it a rest. You know, just because they found a clever way to put your name on it. Do I, do I, doesn't mean that it's for you. Great. (laughs) So that's a song out of Ann Arbor Zen Center. And there are two CDs with lots more fun songs. There's one called Bailing Out Water in a Leaky Canoe, which also has to do with bailing out your mind. A A lot of other great songs. So after we sing this, we talk to the kids about what does this mean? What's the junk in your mental mailbox? And they'll tell you. So thank you very much for being very attentive and singing so nicely. And if you have any questions, we can talk together. tonight. I understand it was recorded. I was just wondering if you have other copies of your book to purchase here tonight. I didn't bring them, but you can order them through Amazon or you can um, order them through the monastery, www.greatvow.org. And our monastery store is called Zen Works. It's a pun. Zen Works and Zen Works. Zenworks.org. And uh, if you want, I'll, I will sign it. If you, if you send the information, I'll be happy to sign it for you. So you're welcome. We do mindful eating workshops several times a year at the monastery, weekend workshops. And they're very fun. A lot of fun. They're poignant because of people's stories. Um, but we, we have a, a great time and make a lot of discoveries about, about mindful eating. Uh, it's one of, one, people's, one of our favorite workshops to do. And I've done them in other places around the country, and they're, uh, inevitably we all have a good time. How do you handle conflicts with kids? Um, I love Marshall Rosenberg's work where he does giraffes and jackals. So the question is, how do we handle conflict with kids? And mention was made of um, nonviolent communication, which is a wonderful technique. So I think respect is at the bottom of it all. You know, there's a researcher here at the University of Seattle who researches happy marriages you know, in the past, we've researched unhappy marriages, happy marriages, and they put couples in, in, a, in an apartment and video them having a difficult discussion. And he says he can tell within three to ten minutes whether the couple's going to be able to stay together or not. And what's at the bottom of, of his discernment is respect. So if there's a fundamental respect for the other person's point of view, then the relationship has a good chance of lasting for a long time and being self-characterized as a good relationship. I think it's the same with kids, that if we can really sit down and listen to them, and that's so hard because our lives are so busy. You know, we, I have one, one practice. We do a, each week at the monastery, we do a mindfulness task. 
and we, change, we have a discussion at the end of the week and then we change it for the next week. And the next book I'm writing actually for lay to help with lay practice is 52, A Year of Mindful Living, 52 Mindfulness Tasks, adapted from the monastery's mindfulness tasks. And a lot of them are really fun, but one is to, when we say goodbye to people during that week, to say goodbye with the awareness that we may never see them again. The Japanese have a tradition that when someone leaves, you wait and you bow or wave goodbye until they are out of sight. And I think it's based on that awareness that this could be the very last time we will see them. So you want that parting to be a good memory. I mean, so often our parting is, here's your lunch, see you later, you know, or no, or no, or no farewell. And so for that week, we really honor those partings. Uh, and look the person in the eye or, or hug them or kiss them. Um, and, and so that, again, is that, is that respect what's true, which is that we care. And we lose sight of that so easily in our busy lives. And so with children, to spend just a minute, if they, if they have something to tell us, to, to sit down and listen to it and try to understand. And NBC has this great framework for not just mirroring back, but trying to understand. And let, me, let me make sure I have this right. I'm not sure I understand what you're saying. Terrific. And it's a model for children. You, you know, there's a whole curriculum called emotional intelligence for kids to help them try to understand what they're feeling and, and voice it and not have to just act it out, but have other ways to deal with it. So if you can say, I'm angry, and you'll be amazed how many adults come in into Zen training, well, maybe you wouldn't be amazed. And they, and they don't know they're angry. And they'll say to me, two years into training, you know, I'm angry. I always consider that great progress. <laughs> when somebody says, I've looked inside deeply and it's not a very pretty picture, I want to go, congratulations. Now we're going to get somewhere. So, and children, up till the time they're teenagers, don't have a lot of um, objectivity about what's going on inside. So the emotional intelligence helps that. And our reflecting, honoring and reflecting what, what they're going through can be very helpful in, in growing them up a little faster in a good way about understanding this body-heart-mind complex that we're all living with. Question? Well, I was wondering if you have any ideas about... Um, Teenagers who ha- weren't exposed as small children to the practices. I, um, my son, he thinks we learn how to levitate when we go to the center, <laughs> right. you know. And it's like the, the trappings, the sure. bowing, the chanting, totally put him off. Right. I mean, he's curious, but he, he won't participate in anything because he thinks it's too weird. Right. Right. So that's a different one. Starting with the little ones, sure. that's something. But the big ones, I, I don't know what to do. Sure. A couple of suggestions. Teenagers are particularly difficult because they're going through a phase of separating from us. So everything we do is dumb. I remember being mortified by my mother. You know, I just like walk on the other side of the street and pretend I didn't know her. And, but deep down, I knew she was a wonderful person, a very extraordinary person. So deep down, there's something else going on than what's on the surface. I also remember my mother waking me up at night and, and having me come outside to look at the northern lights. And I remember so distinctly, I was a teenager going, 
Oh, yeah. But inside, I was thinking, this is fantastic. But I, I could not let her see that, you know, for those few years. And also, this is, <laughs> these are just little, little tidbits from life. When my youngest son, Noah, first went to Evergreen College, uh, about three weeks after he got into his room with his two roommates, he was, we were talking to him, and he said, you know, I, I finally told my roommates that my mom practiced Zen, and they all said, oh, how cool. And, I, and he suddenly saw me as cool, you know, <laughs> rather than as someone to be secretive about. <laughs> so there's a lot going on in your son, is what I want to say, that you don't know. Uh, and he may secretly be very intrigued, very proud of you, that you're kind of cool, or may, he may discover that later. So you have to be true to who you are and authentic about what appeals to you. Uh, and, the, and share that, you know, it, not in an overwhelming way, but be forthright about what you're doing and what you enjoy. And there may be some aspect of it that he might like. Let's say Noah Levine comes. You know? There's a lot of kind of interesting, like, street zen stuff going on right now. Uh, maybe he'd be interested in that. Maybe that would be cool enough. Uh, or you can leave books lying around. And when you don't know it, and they never tell you they did this, but they might read parts of them. Books with interesting titles like Full Catastrophe Living or The Places That Scare You. You, know, they're, you just leave them around. I read a lot of my parents' books, and they never knew that. So we can't force it, but we don't want to hide it. And just be true to who you are, and they'll, they have to find their own path. And then you could also leave the computer on to something interesting on YouTube. They learn a lot through YouTube. Or you could rent some interesting videos, Dharma movies, but not overt Dharma movies, but Dharma movies that have, you know, we at the monastery will watch a lot of movies that have a Dharma theme but aren't overt. A list, yeah, uh huh. Yeah, I should put it on our website, I guess. Oh, very. The overt ones, of course, are Little Buddha. There's a new one about Dogen Zenji's life called um, Zen, Life of Zen Master Dogen. Uh, there's one about Bodhidharma, which has got Kung Fu in it. That's called um, Master of Zen, I think it's called. Master of Zen, the Bodhidharma movie. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Now that one's got a lot of sex in it, but yeah, that one might appeal. <laughs> yeah, that's called Spring, Summer, Fall, Winter, Spring. Gorgeous, visually gorgeous, like a poem, a visual poem. Yeah, yeah, I think it's got just the right amount of sex in it for a teenager. <laughs> Any other suggestions people have for good movies? I mean, there's... Hmm? A Korean film called High Dharma. There's Milarepa. What teenager wouldn't like Milarepa? The life of Milarepa. 
Yeah. There's the cup about soccer. Yeah, any, anything by Crusoe. So you've got a lot of suggestions right here. You should comp you could combine a Northwest. We could do a Northwest Dharma Association Dharma movie list. Overt and hidden. <laughs> there are so many good movies. Does any, did anybody see the movie Lars and the Real Girl? That's a Dharma movie. That's so sweet. It's about compassion. It's about this guy who's socially inept and... So he, he gets a, a, essentially a mannequin to be his girlfriend. And then he brings it home to his sister's house in the community. And they have to figure out how to adapt to this strange situation. It's all about compassion. The Truman Show? Absolutely. It's about the created world, right? About the world of dreams. Yeah. So when you start looking underneath, there's lots of good Dharma films out there, so you don't, we don't have to be too pushy about it. Yeah. Other questions? Erica. Um, is that on? I do uh, groups, mummy baby groups, and um, the concern of the young mothers when they get so much information and so much pressure to get it right and the relief that comes with just the notion you know how to do it trust yourself one piece and the other the whole kind of baby Einstein you know my kids already behind you know and they're only four months old but they're not you know doing the right kind of coordination and do you have any thoughts on addressing that pressure um, on new parents and young children? It's partly due to lack of community. Yes. That we grew up in tribes and we had so many grandmothers, aunts, and so on, a big extended family that could help us. We could pass kids off, and if we were feeling grumpy, the aunt would take them for the day. And then there was a lot of, of course, advice and common sense that came from the whole community. And we watched children, other children being raised. We, we also babysat children. So it was, a, it was a, um, an environment that supported parenting. We don't have that anymore. We have teenage parents all alone trying to figure it out. And you're right, a plethora of information. And the problem with all that information, and this is the same thing with mindful eating, if you eat with your mind, if you parent with your mind, I call it mind hunger, it's it just a source of anxiety because the information is always changing. So you might be doing what they said yesterday to do, but tomorrow that could be proved wrong. Right? Not the way to parent or not the way to eat. Like when I was in medical school, butter was bad. You were supposed to eat margarine endorsed by the AMA, coroner and margarine. So what do we discover 20 years later? Margarine is trans fat. It's worse, for the, worse than butter. So we thought we were doing what was right, and it turned out we were doing the absolute wrong thing. I mean, that's, the, that's when you try to do it by your mind. So your basic message to these young parents, and especially mothers, is you have the knowledge in you. It's innate in you, and your baby can help bring it out. The dog training manuals are actually very good. Learn from your dog. Watch your dog. 
see what the dog is attracted to and so on. Use that information. And the same with, with children. Watch their rhythms. Now, the, uh, along with that, sometimes comes a problem when the personalities don't match. So you may get a very active, outgoing mom and a very shy baby. So then you have to help them understand different temperaments. Or vice versa, a very shy, quiet mom and a very boisterous, outgoing kid. And then they feel right away they've done something wrong because this kid is, has a different personality. So helping them understand the range of temperaments and that, that they do have the wisdom. The experts don't have it all. My mother-in-law said to me, I felt so badly because we were trained in the era of don't touch the baby. Don't touch the baby. You might give it germs and only feed them on rigidly at, on every four hours. And she said to my husband, you cried and cried and I felt so horrible. But we were following the doctor's advice. That's parenting up here, not parenting here. I'm mindful parenting. <laughs> Do they exist? Yeah, some books about mindful parenting? No, not the one I'm reading. Maybe you should write it. <laughs> Are there comments or questions? Time? Okay. Well, it's up to you. Anybody who needs to leave, feel free to leave. That would be fine. You have a question back here? Please enjoy your drive home. Drive safely. Thank you. You've already answered this question to some extent about uh, uh, being true to yourself and the, the embodying the benefits of living the Dharma. But my question pertains to how you cope with a family structure where one parent is, has retired from their spiritual being and in no way seeks to expand their spiritual being or understand that, and the other one does. Um, so the difficulty I face personally is how to, how to be respectful of my partner and her choices, or having chosen not to choose, uh, relative to my kids who I, I seek to, to expose to and to bring up, at least mindful of the Dharma. Um, it's, it's kind of thorny and I was wondering if you had any suggestions about that sure, so very good question about what to do essentially if your partner doesn't practice the more usual question is they have another kind of practice, like we have people in our sangha whose wives go to the Episcopal church and they practice in Buddhism but you, we also have many people whose partners don't practice in a formal way at all Well, I think we, it gets down to respect that there are phases in our spiritual life, and I'm taking the long view of spiritual life, that I would call resting and integration phases. So all of, that, all of us have experienced that, that we may practice intensely. Let's say we go to a seven or ten day retreat. We practice intense, intensively. We have some insights. We feel like my practice is moving along. And then there comes a, what I, you could call a plateau or a resting phase. And I think that's very necessary, where you integrate the transformations that have occurred, because a lot of the transformations of spiritual practice occur below the level of the conscious mind. The conscious mind can't be in control of these transformations. So they occur at a very deep level, and we can't even be sure what they are, but there's an integration phase while those changes are 
integrated into our life, into our functioning. And then another phase begins. Dogen Zenji, the great Japanese Zen master, said, our spiritual life goes in a spiral. So there's the spiral of where you seem to be moving along and changing, and then there's this resting phase. And you come back around, oh, then it's time to practice again. So I don't think that those cycles have to be a month long or a year long. They could be lifetimes long. So if you could see your partner as in an an integration or necessary resting phase uh, and support that and then be ready when they're ready to move, which may happen, may not happen. When they're ready to move uh, in a more apparent way. One of the games I play, and this might be applicable to your partner too, is to try to figure out every person's access to the divine. Everyone has it. You would not be alive if you didn't. If you didn't have some way of plugging into the divine source of life energy. So in the most unlikely people, you can find it. You find out what they love to do in their free time, what really turns them on. So it could be gardening. And you start to talk to them about bulbs, spring bulbs. Where do you get your spring bulbs and where do you plant them? And they just light up. Or it could be a pet. Often it's a pet. People who love cats or take in orphan cats or people who love their little finches you know, or their guppies. And you start to talk to them about them. You can feel this energy begin to suffuse the room. And you know that's their portal to the divine. Could be golf, could be fishing. Golf and fishing are meditative practices. Could be knitting. A lot of people knit these days, and that's their meditation practice. Uh, You never know what it will be. Collecting postcards. We have one woman in our song who's extremely active. Her husband comes to potlucks and social events, but never comes to any of the formal events. But he collects postcards. And somehow, of of beach scenes, ancient and modern, and somehow that, and he goes to the postcard shows and, you know, trades and so on. That's his access to some aspect of the divine. And another game I play, so I, I try to, anybody I meet, I try to figure out what's their portal. And then you talk to them and it's very juicy. And, and you just appreciate their love of whatever it is. And then, then another game I play is to figure out what, ac- what aspect of the divine does that touch? Okay, so let's take postcards. I've never done this one, actually. Postcards of the ocean, of the beach. Okay, the beach is where land meets water, a huge expanse of water, right? And it's where people go and dip into that huge expanse of water. Ultimately could drown you. Drowns many people, right? Dangerous, but attractive. And there it is on a little card. Now... Does that have some relationship to spiritual practice? I think so. Or you take um, salt and pepper shakers. People collect salt and pepper shakers, right? Okay, so we, so we look at that. I mean, this is a great game. <laughs> what aspect of the divine do salt and pepper collections speak of, speak to? Guesses? Humor, some of them are very humorous. So one aspect of enlightenment is take yourself lightly. Right? Duality. Duality. Pairs. 
pairs, duality, you've got the opposites there, right? The salt and the pepper, and often they're male and female or some kind of opposites. Everything comes in pairs, the tension of opposites. Yeah, so you're getting at it. See, isn't that a fun game? <laughs> and then it's miniature things. You know, miniature. A lot of things at collections are miniatures. Well, what are we? We're miniatures of what? Seen from God's eye. We're just like little ants crawling around. Little miniature things. Yes. Exactly. Making a little bit of order out of chaos. Isn't that our spiritual task? Constantly trying to make order and then having it completely overthrown. Yeah. See? You're giving me idea. <laughs> yeah. So your partner, guaranteed, has an access point. And if you can appreciate that and support that, that's good. I mean, uh, we would all love it if we were what the Christians called equally yoked. Equally yoked means equally yoked to this particular spiritual cart and pulling it in the same direction. Both of us, you know, in the traces, pull, pull, pull. We, we both go to retreats, we trade off retreats and so on. But, you know, life doesn't always bring us that. We marry people, we get together with, with people for reasons. So that's a whole other practice, actually. Seeing your partner as your spiritual teacher. They are teaching you about qualities that you have hidden within you that are not manifest in the world, yet in you. And you're intrigued, we say opposites attract, that means you're intrigued by this manifestation in the world of qualities that you wish you could manifest, and they to you for the same reason. But then those very same qualities that intrigue you and bring you together like little magnets in three or four to seven years become problematic, right? So you, you're a messy person, creative chaos, let's say, and you marry a neatnik. You get together with somebody who's so orderly, just so intriguing. You know, they have all the spices alphabetized. And I was talking to a woman just last week, and she said, how did you know? My husband has all of his socks balled up in the shoes that match the socks. And he has... <laughs> And all the shirts that go with the ties and so on. all that. And so at first, that's very intriguing. This is a fantastic way to live. You know, I'd like to learn about this. But within three to seven years, it's what? An obsessive, compulsive, anal retentive idiot. <laughs> but if we remember that we did this on purpose to learn about spiritual qualities that we don't have, ways of being in the world that we don't have, then we can stay open to it. Because they're feeling the same way about us. Slob. <laughs> Whereas before they love this sort of creative aspect of being loose and carefree. So I think maybe we should close down. Thank you very much. We had fun. Please enjoy your practice.